You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Well, welcome everyone to our uh, gospel reflection here for Palm Sunday. We're blessed to have Father Francois Beirudi with us uh, from our Holy Cross Melkite Church uh, in the Los Angeles area, not uh, in Placentia, right, Father? Placentia. Orange County, technically, yes. County was a beautiful, growing community, and uh, we're just blessed to have you here with us as we prepare ourselves for Palm Sunday. You know, in the midst of this crisis we're in in our society, we're preparing ourselves. It's all that much more important that we really are preparing in our homes for the celebration of Palm Sunday. So just a blessing to be with you. I'd ask you to open us up in prayer. Thank you, Father Hezekiah, for the invitation and uh, greetings to everyone who's who's watching us um, online, uh, YouTube, or or whatever way this is going to get broadcast. It's actually a a blessing to be able to use uh, modern communication in this way. So. I uh, always want to start, always start in prayer, not prayer as a formality, but actually prayer is the foundation of everything that we do, because um, we're not trying to understand something on our own behalf and our own intelligence, but we want the Holy Spirit to guide us in this process, especially when reading his word, we want him to guide us in that, in the reading and also in the understanding of the word. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, the Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come, O good one, and dwell in us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls. I also want to add uh, another very important prayer, which I always recommend that people pray both of these prayers before reading the Bible, before opening up the Word of God in any way. Um, it's that, and it's the prayer that we read before the reading of the Holy Gospel during the Divine Liturgy, although we don't always say it out loud. But uh, if you're praying at home or even if you're listening to this uh, broadcast, just pause it a bit and feel free to stop and uh, just um, pray this prayer and realize that God is guiding us in this process of reading and interpreting. So let's uh, pray the prayer together. Shine in our heart, hearts. Master who love mankind, the pure light of your divine knowledge, open the eyes of our mind that we may understand the announcing of your good news. Set in us the fear of your blessed commandments so that trampling all carnal desires, we may live according to the spirit, both willing and doing everything that pleases you. For you are the light of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and we render glory to you and to your eternal Father, and to your all holy, good, and life-giving spirit, now and always, and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Father, for opening us up in prayer. Um, you know, I'm going to ask you to do something. Uh, we probably will, you know, we're not going to do this every time, but maybe, you know, from your own, uh, your own experience, you have a doctorate in sacred scripture, and besides that, giving your homilies on Sunday. And just before we get into the text for Palm Sunday, maybe you could give us some guidance on good, practices of Bible study, how to approach the scriptures in preparation for Sunday. Very good. Sure. Thank you. That's very important because um, when I give 
homilies or when I give a class or anything, it's never about me trying to explain something that no one else can figure out, or it's never about me giving the only interpretation or application. Um, it's very important to see that there are many, many aspects of every biblical text. There's, there are many historical elements of it, and there are many applications that, uh, that can, be, can be made. And that's the beauty of the Bible, is that for the last 2,000 years, and of course even in Old Testament times, people of all sorts of cultures, people of all sorts of regions, all sorts of languages have read the Bible and found it very relevant in their life. How could this be? What other book is like that that can be so applicable? So one of the uh, major principles that I uh, always share with people uh, explaining how to read the Bible is that if you think of two, two, an analogy of two things. First, uh, the difference between a window and a mirror. You know, everybody, maybe you're sitting at home. If you're, if you're sitting at home with no windows, then uh, maybe you're in prison. But we're, if you're in prison, God bless you as well. But for the most part, every room has a window. And uh, why is the window so important? Because it takes us into a different world. It shows us something that is not um, in, inside the room. It shows us something outside the room. And what does a mirror do? A mirror shows us ourselves and a reflection of something um, in us or around us. So how does this apply to reading the Bible? Well, let's look at a very simple example of uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 35 to 38. Um, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we could read this, uh, this section from the Gospel of Luke, and actually anybody around the world could read this, regardless of what religion they may be, or even people who might not have a religion and say, wow, that's, that's a pretty amazing section. That's, that's beautiful. But an angel appeared to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon her, and we can pick up so many elements of, of this text. We can uh, look at the context of uh, this, t this taking place in Nazareth. We can um, look at the geographical element of where, where Nazareth is with relation to Jerusalem and where it is with relation to the world. We can look at it on a globe. We can keep looking into this uh, you know, at the level of a window, looking at a world that is not ours, looking at a different world, looking at something that is not really connected to us, just like we would be reading a history book. We don't need to be, we don't need to be from Africa to read about what, what's happening in Nigeria or what happened in Nigeria 300 years ago or 200 years ago. So it's really important to make this distinction because sometimes people just stick at this level. They just read the Bible and it's just a, an interesting book. And you, you might know that a lot of universities might have courses in um, the Bible is literature or the Bible is history or the Bible um, reflect, related to any uh, political thought and the Bible, all sorts of things. That is just, you know, the distant part of the Bible. So for us, we want to start there. This is kind of the important point that I want to make. We, we don't want to ignore the history. We do care where Nazareth is. We do care who Mary is. We do care about all the details of what happened in the story. But that is not it for us. We don't stop there. We don't stop at what happened in Nazareth. 
And the reason I pick this verse is because, uh, the reason I pick this section is because of the, the verse, the last verse that I read. And Mary said, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So right there, you can admire Mary for her perfect response to the words of the angel. But more importantly, this should be our prayer every single day of our life. Every day we should say, let it be done to me according to your word. That's the mirror. The window is seeing that Mary did it and then looking at all the things that resulted after Mary said yes, you know, um, the difficulty that she had, the flight into Egypt, raising Jesus in Nazareth, uh, even her own pain and suffering as Jesus was going to the cross and, and being crucified. But then how do we take that and, and mirror that in our life? And are we able to say yes to God and uh, basically mirror her, her yes? So that's the, the basic distinction between them, the mirror and the, the window that I'd like to make. And if you, uh, just very briefly as well, we don't want to have an entire session just on biblical hermeneutics. It's kind of my, my favorite topic because that's the course that I taught. I used to teach at the Sheptitsky Institute of Eastern Christian Studies. It was the early interpretation of the Bible, which really focuses on how the fathers of the church not only read the Bible in a very historical way and tried to unpack the details of the texts and all sorts of um, textual analysis that they did, but then also moved into establishing the faith of the community, understanding church doctrine that's rooted in a biblical way. So. Mm -hmm. This is kind of my the field that I love. But if you think of also a very quick acronym, PRAY, P-R-A-Y. First is to pray, to, like we did at the beginning. And we didn't pray, as I said before, as a formality. Okay, let's pray and get it over with so we can start our work. No, the prayer, we're still praying right now. And prayer opens up opens up the door for, to allow God's work in us. And then read, read in a, in a historical way. Read, read, the, read and understand the whole narrative. And then analyze it, go into the details, start getting, get your shovel and start taking words apart. Look at the Greek if you can, look at the Hebrew if you can, or commentaries and, and see where there's repetition in the text. And then finally, the Y stands for yes. Once I gave a talk to a group of young people and they said, and I said, what does Y stand for? And one of them said, yeah. And that's even better than mine. Oh, yeah. So pray, read, analyze, and for tonight, we'll change it. Say yeah to God. So that's kind of the overview of what we're trying to do when we're giving the homily, but also what we're trying to do when we're reading the Bible. And uh, finally, um, uh, before we get into our, our text for today, there's a, a saying that I read a while back, and I, I love it. It's that there are more people who have heard of a Bible than have one. There are more people who have one than read it. There are more people who read it than understand it. And there are more people who understand it than actually live it. So that helps us understand this transition or see this transition from hearing to living the word of God. Mm -hmm. And it, you might ask, well, is that actually found? Is that how the early church read the Bible? And the answer is absolutely. That's rooted in um, both the Old and the New Testament, actually. Well, let's look at the New Testament for a little bit. There are two uh, passages that I want to highlight. Number one is the story of Emmaus. A lot of you know, I think everybody knows the story, but in, there's some nuances here that I just want to highlight. I don't want to read the whole passage because it's kind of it's long. 
but um, the, the two roads on the two, on the, the two that were on the road to Emmaus, while, while they were talking, verse 15, we're in chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke right now, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's why we need to pray. Their eyes were, were, were kept from recognizing. We can't recognize the, what God wants us to recognize in, in his word if we don't pray. Their eyes were, were kept from recognizing him. And then he says to them, what is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? So number one, Jesus did not need to know what the conversation was. He already knew. He didn't need to, he didn't need to ask them. He could have said, okay, this is what um, you're talking about. But he asks them because what happens here is that they begin to recount the story. They go into the details of the story to show Jesus and to remind themselves that they know the different stages of the story, but they've missed the very important element because it says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yet, and besides all this, it is now the third, third day since this happened. So they've got the whole story, except they don't have the answer. They missed the last part, which is the, which is the important part. And that's where Jesus says, oh, foolish men. And this is the important part related to biblical interpretation and exegesis, uh, where he says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So all the prophecies preparing for Jesus in the Old Testament. And then Jesus goes on to say, was it not necessary that the Christ, that's the Greek word, Hebrew word, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory, suffer and glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. So once again, the context here, beginning with Moses and the prophets, what is with Moses? Is it just everything Moses said? Well, in a sense, but it's actually more importantly, everything Moses wrote, which in, in the Old Testament is the book, the first uh, five books, the Pentateuch, which are called the books of Moses. And in the, uh, in the Hebrew breaking up of the Old Testament or the categorization of the Old Testament, we have it's called the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So what Jesus is saying is, I am fulfilling everything that was written about me in the entire Old Testament. So that's what that phrase means in context, beginning with Moses and the prophets. And then finally, he sits with them at a table, as, uh, as we know, and he blessed the bread and uh, broke it and gave it to them. And this is the important part here where I'm getting to. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. So that's the pattern that we want to have in, in our life when reading the Bible. And then they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened the scriptures. So this is what we want to do here today. We want our hearts to burn, but actually our hearts won't burn. We actually we won't even be interested in anything we're, we're hearing today if we don't go through all the stages that are required from praying, from looking at the, uh, the historical context, and then going to that yeah, you know, into our life. And I think that's probably for su sufficient, but for, for those who are at home, um, you can also look up Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. And that's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading. 
the from the prophecy of Isaiah. And then Philip asked him, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And, and Philip invited, and, and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So there we have that pattern that we see from scripture itself that we need to pray, we need to read, we need to analyze, we need to say yes. And going back to the analogy of the window, look at that world of the Bible, realize that it's a world that is not our own in many, actually almost always, politically, historically, geographically, but we have to make it our own because the patterns that are in scripture um, apply to everyone, everywhere, regardless of how old you are. You can have a children's Bible, or you can be 90 years old and have the entire Bible memorized. You can be in a monastery your entire life reading the Bible for hours every day. And guess what? You'll always find something new. You'll always be able to learn something new, and you'll always be able to grow in your relationship with the risen Christ. So that is kind of the important context not a formality. We have to read the Bible within that frame. We can't just dig in because sometimes people say, oh, what does this verse mean? Well, there, verses don't mean things in isolation. And uh, the big error that sometimes people have is, you know, they, they, might like, they might like a particular verse or now there are certain apps, you'll get a verse every day. Well, that's great. But without a context, there is no text. Um, there is no verse that exists in isolation. And we have to be able to place it in that larger world of where the verse is in the chapter, where the chapter is in the book, where the book is in the New Testament or the Old Testament, and where that fits into the entire, this is a very important word, the plan of salvation, the biblical narrative from creation to, to the end of time, to, to the book of Revelation and, and to the consummation of all things. And that's particularly important uh, during this, these weeks of Lent, a great Lent, because we also use the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. Of course, we don't use the liturgy of St. Basil the Great on Palm Sunday, but all the Sundays of Lent, which focuses on the plan of salvation and that everything God has done for us, and specifically the incarnation and uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. So every text that we read, has to have that background. Um, well, we, yeah, we need uh, we need Saint Philip here, and that's why we're not here with us, you know. So yeah. we need to climb up into the chariot and then and take us along this thing on because I can't think honestly of of text, you know. Well, maybe the one you looked at there in Luke, and yeah. then the Palm Sunday text it has more rich background and context and beautiful things that are going on in the text that a kind of that superficial reading isn't going to give us. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and, and we need someone to guide us through it. So why don't we jump into that here in John chapter 12 and take a look at this Perfect. gospel that's given to us. How does that sound? Perfect. Well, um, unfortunately, the chariot I had outside just left, so we can't jump in the chariot. So we have, our audience has you and me. So we'll, we'll do go. our best to, uh, <laughs> to take care of this in the best, best way we can. And um, as Father Hezekiah may have said in the past, or you know, said it's, I'll say, say it on behalf of both of us, what we are going to share with you today, it only scratches the surface of, of the historical context of the Bible and what you can apply to it. 
Um, everything we share with you, take them as patterns, but also don't be afraid to find an application in your life that we may have not um, pointed to. That is very important because I'm, we are not trying to crack open a text that has hidden meaning that we have been given secretly. Right. That is really important. It's that this text is for you to open up, regardless of if you have never, ever opened up the Bible, start today. Open up the Bible, get a good Catholic study Bible, um, look at the footnotes, and start that way by, by realizing that uh, Bible texts are never seen in isolation. And we're going to show you what I, everything we're going to do today. Hopefully, it'll be helpful for this reading. But more importantly, this is my hope, more importantly, it'll be helpful for you every time you read the Bible and some of the questions that you need to ask yourself. So, so this is at where, where does this fit into what I was saying before? So we prayed. Um, now we, we read, uh, we, we, we're not going to read the text because I think you're going to have to do that at home so that we're not taking more time. But, you know, you know, the text today is John chapter 12, verses 1 to 18. So PR, pray, read. Now we're going to do some, a little bit of the analysis. And, uh, and literally there are hundreds, if not, well, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of books on analysis. And uh, if you ever go to uh, the Society of Biblical Literature, any biblical conference, you'll see, uh, you'll find hundreds of commentaries on different angles of how the Bible can be seen. So um, now we're going to try to hit it, hit at least an element, a very, very small section of the analysis. And regardless of how much analysis you do, do some sort of analysis. So let's just um, let's just jump right in here. Jump Paul. right in. So basically, we have in the gospel a very important first point. Where do we start um, when we do an analysis? Well, this is the Gospel of John. Okay, so there are four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, three of them are called synoptic gospels. And then there's the Gospel of John, which has a different order and it has a different focus. Uh, the, the conversations and the, or the narratives are a little longer and uh, they have a different style. We won't get it, but it's important to understand that we're dealing with the Gospel of John. And another very important question, well, where does our section fall within the Gospel of John? We have to be able to place it. Is this at the beginning of the Gospel of John? Is this like the first thing Jesus says after he's born? Or is it after the resurrection? Where does this place, where does this take place? So number one, this takes place in roughly the middle. There are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And why is this important? Because if we go back one verse before is chapter 11. Uh, is that kind of strange how that happens? Uh, the, the chapter before 12 is, happens to be 11 in my book or in my Bible. Hopefully it's the same with yours. So this is a very, very important context here because it's the story of the raising of Lazarus. And we know in our Byzantine tradition, um, Byzantine Catholic and Orthodox tradition, is that uh, we have, we celebrate the raising of Lazarus, Lazarus Saturday, um, on sat the Saturday before Palm Sunday. And also as a historical note, people sometimes wonder why do we start the, Lent, the Great Fast on Monday um, rather than on Wednesday, Ash, Ash Wednesday in the Roman Catholic Church, we started on Monday because the way we calculate 
the 40 days is slightly different. We start on Monday and the last day of the great fast for us is the Friday before Lazarus Saturday. And then Lazarus Saturday um, starts an entire separate fast. The fast isn't over, the 40 days of the fast are over, but we start um, the, the week preparation for the fast. So in a sense, that becomes a direct focus on uh, and focus and preparation for the death and resurrection of Christ. So the first thing that our liturgical tradition puts on the first day of that new new week, uh, that, that, that week of preparation, is the, the story of the raising of Lazarus, which actually is, is perfect because it's actually in chapter 11, right before the verse that we are about to read. Why is that important? Number one, because it's a resurrection story. So guess what? The liturgical tradition and the biblical tradition go work hand in hand. In fact, the liturgical tr tradition tries to mirror as much as possible or to, to show the, the larger worldview of the biblical tradition in ways that are much shorter because we don't have time to read the entire Old Testament and New Testament. So we're given kind of pointers as themes for our reading and our liturgical life. So the story of Lazarus, Lazarus of course, we have Lazarus who dies. Um, and Jesus says, our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. There's a bit of a play on words here because the word resurrection in Greek literally means to stand up, to get up. Anastasis. So to stand up. So he's sitting down or he's sleeping and Jesus is going to resurrect him. And this is the, the weakness of translations. Um, I'm going to raise him from the dead. I'm going to raise him up. So even the, when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus, it's he is raised up. He's getting up. So right away, Jesus starts by saying, I'm going to wake him up. I'm going to raise him up. Right. And then the uh, irony here, there's two ironies that take place. One is Martha and Mary said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, the irony is, it's that he is going to rise because Jesus is there. Jesus shows that he has the power over life and death. And so this is a very important preparation. We don't, going, we don't want to have an exegesis of, of this section, but this is a very, very, very important context to, to keep in mind, especially liturgically, is that Jesus, as we start Holy Week, it's a very emotional time for everyone, even as, I would say even, even for, but perhaps especially for priests, because we're there for all the prayers in the morning and the evening for five days. So it's a, it's a, so it's a wonderful experience to, to go through, because you're going through all the Gospels, and you're going through the experience of what happened to Jesus from the bridegroom service all the way up to the death, and then, of course, the great Hedgeme and, and the glorious celebration of the glorious resurrection. So this leads us to that, that week and reminds us that although we're going to start our prayers that focus on Jesus' suffering, his betrayal, his death, his hanging on the cross, but we see it within the frame of, well, hold on a second. If he was able to raise 
a man, if he was able to raise Lazarus, his friend, well then, maybe, <laughs> maybe he has the power to raise, maybe this week isn't going to end up so badly after all. So let's see what happens. <laughs> so that is, uh, we should never underestimate the power or the importance of context. So without getting into any further details of that context uh, and that preparation, but that's where it where it starts. Our passage. The dog. Yeah. Sorry, the go dog. ahead, Father. Would you like to add something or? I don't, I don't want to add anything. Yeah. I just want to say that you know the gospel does exactly what, the gospel passage we have this Sunday does exactly yeah. what you're saying. That is, it starts sure. by reminding us of what Jesus has done for Lazarus. Here we are, six days before Passover. So we want to remember. We want to remind ourselves what happened in Passover. Why is that mentioned? Correct. But then right here, we get into the story, and then he comes back, and he has dinner with right. Lazarus, Martha, Mary. And then there's this anointing of Jesus, and, yeah. and, and which, you know, we get so used to these texts. You know, you're like, okay, of course, the anointing. Yeah, yeah. But we want, why is this important in its context of that, that culture? You know, what's going on there? So, so I'll get out of your way, Father, but just... No, no, please, yeah. I mean, we're, we're both... We're both, I wish we, we were also live. People have uh, other, their input as well, because people's input is, is sometimes much more valuable than, you know, we, we say something, we, you know, we study. It's kind of a, the funny thing about, you know, spending so much time studying the Bible is that sometimes you study something, a passage for a couple of weeks, and then you think you, you've got it, and then you talk about it, and somebody says, oh, how about this? And you're like, wow, that is much better than anything I just said. <laughs> And it just came to you because that's uh, that's how reading the Bible works. But let's not just depend only on that. We need to do both. But you brought a very, very, very important, uh, another very important context is that the meal that Jesus had with uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And then um, the last section of the Gospel of, uh, the chapter 11 of the Gospel of John specifically speaks of the Passover. The Passover of the Jews was near. It's none of this is coincidental. None of it is accidental. You have to always realize that the, the, the gospel writers and the New Testament writers and the Old Testament writers share with us a treasure. And it's like the most finely painted painting you could imagine, better than anything you've ever seen in your life. And every, every word is like a color and a shade that, a, that Picasso or Michelangelo, any of the greatest authors, any of the greatest painters have taken us. So don't overlook, thank you, Father Hezekiah. This is a, a very, very important. It's like, oh yeah, I've heard that. You know, people say, oh, you know, oh, I've, I've heard that gospel. Why do you read the same gospel every year? Because we need to hear it every year. <laughs> we need to, we're always learning something new every time we hear it. Um, so meals are important. We read before the Gospel of Luke, Emmaus, how important the meal was. Uh, meals were important here. The Passover was important. And, of course, without getting into a lot of context of the Old Testament, what is the, what is the Passover celebrating, passing over from death to life? That should give us a little bit of a hint. Um, sometimes uh, in my classes or my talks, I, I carry a little bell, bing, 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 or a ball. Texts need to ring. If they're not ringing, if there's nothing, if there's nothing that is ringing 
off the text that we're reading. If there's no context that we see, we're reading the text at a very flat level. So sometimes I carry a ball because it actually serves as two purposes. It wakes people up. <laughs> I've accidentally put them to sleep. But every time you read a text, bounce the ball and realize that something needs to be bouncing. So the Passover, oh, it's a meal. No, it's not just about a meal. When you hear the word, the, the Passover, you hopefully have read the, all the, the, the passages or the whole sections in the, in the Old Testament, both the Passover, if you haven't, read it. Because that is that one word is meant to create the frame for the whole for the whole passage, for the whole section we are to read. And especially importantly for us as Eastern Catholics, it's, it's meant to help us liturgically um, and how, as I said before, the raising of Lazarus is portrayed. So it's when we're praying or we're listening to the, the, the section of Jesus' death, then we see the, the we, we remember that this is not the story of the death of Jesus. This is the story of the Passover from death mm. to life. So a very important three verses that are kind of hidden um, at the end of the chapter of 11 and which are the three verses that precede the, the text that we are reading before. And that is a principle that you should follow all the time when you are in church and, uh, and all, all our churches spend uh, a good, good amount of money, and a good amount of time producing beautiful calendars. The calendar that we have of our, of our diocese, our eparchy is, is magnificent, not only with um, different years on different themes, but also it has the readings for the Sunday. So at home, you need to don't just show up to church and then say, see what the priest has to say. Oh, well, that's important or the deacon, but read it at home. And then, so you'll have more time because we, we don't have time in church to go into all these details. And when you read it at home, don't just read chapter, chapter 12, one to 18, read a chapter before and a chapter after and see um, where this is uh, couched, where this is framed, where this is, you know, placed. So we get the conscious. So that's the, that's the context. And the first part of this, after we, you know, we, we, we see the context, is the anointing at Bethany. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus. He had raised from the dead, and they made him a supper there. And Martha served while Lazarus was one of those sitting at the table with him. So one of the things we very important to focus on when reading the, the text is people, places, and what is happening. So context of the Passover, as we said, Bethany, Lazarus, a meal. Very simple because this is, we are preparing for Jesus' death, but we prepare for it with a meal and we end with a meal. We end with a meal. That's, that's an important thing. We begin with a meal here, but also where is this placed, where is the reading of the, of the Bible placed in, in the liturgy be, right before we begin the preparation for, for the Eucharist, liturgy of the Eucharist, right? So we are beginning the preparation for the meal and ultimately all this is that we prepare ourselves for the final mystical banquet with our Lord in heaven, okay? So there are actually two sections uh, 
two separate sections. Well, there's nothing, nothing in the Bible is actually separate, but the two sections that um, are, are found in the reading for today. It's the anointing of, of, of at Bethany, but also the uh, entry into Jerusalem. Um, did Father Hezekiah, did you want to add anything to that or just uh, focus on anything? Yeah, I, guess I, I wanted to, yeah, go ahead. The only, the only aspect was, that, was this anointing in its original context, yes. because again, yeah, that's the context today, you know. Sorry, like, say it again. My well, apologies. It, it, it's a little strange for us today. Most people don't walk into our homes and we like, you know, somebody special comes and we go pour, our, you know, our olive oil jar over their feet. So, right. you know, can help us understand that in order to stand in there and see it happen, you know. So this anointing, as I said, always see this, that every text as bouncing or reverberating or seeing echo of a, of a text. All these uh, things are very important because what, what happens at, at when Jesus, what happens after Jesus dies? He's anointed and he's anointed with very costly ointment. And uh, what happens at his birth? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh brought to him, brought um, and laid at his feet. So you see the context, beginning, middle, end. Um, why was the ointment uh, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor, is what Jesus says. So, the, actually, sorry, I should go back a bit. Mary, therefore, took a pound of ointment, genuine nard of great value, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and with her hair wiped his feet dry. The key um, element of this passage is that she is prefiguring or preparing him for his death and resurrection. Um, as mirrored also at his at his death and resurrection. So once again, it's very important to see these texts as, as framing um, the passage for the passages that are to come and for for the larger theme that is found um, at to, as we enter into the second part of the Gospel of John. You know, Father, as uh, as you're as you're reminding us about this context, you know, it's, it's back in chapter eleven that you get. This interesting thing when Lazarus is raised from the dead, those that are so-called mourning with the sisters are the ones that some break off and actually go in, go to and tell uh, the, uh, the 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 leaders in Jerusalem what he's done. So they actually end up turning in our Lord, and it comes back here uh, halfway through our gospel passage. It says, "But some of the chief priests plan to put Lazarus to death also." Uh, which makes this whole thing so crazy. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna murder this guy that just raised from the dead, and um, uh, just it's just quite amazing. And it's right there that suddenly we break into this Palm Sunday procession in which uh, this great crowd. Uh, I mention all that because it's it's the crowd mourning and weeping with the sisters that end up being the traitors, and it's and that same crowd appears here also. They're going to be the ones that call for his crucifixion later on. But for now, they're happy to pull up these branches. And I would just ask you, for sake, we don't have a lot of time left together, but if you can bring the things together that are going on here, sure. these branches are holding in their hands, the, this thing, they're, they're searching in Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord. And then we get this quotation from Zechariah about Jesus gets on this, on this colt, and he rides in, and it's all kind of packaged together um and we want to get behind what's going on in these people's minds that are waving branches around they start singing together this this text and and then jesus comes riding in very good thank you what 
sometimes people are afraid of is to see humor in the Bible. And I, I had, I mentioned that once in a homily and people were, some of them were upset. They thought, talk with I don't find this verse funny. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to tell you you have a bad sense of humor, but first of all, there are surprising elements in the, in the Bible. And like what you've mentioned is actually very important before the, the, the issue of the Sanhedrin. So there are nine verses that are right before the, the section. So it's kind of squeezed in there, right after the raising of Lazarus. We have uh, verses 45 to 54 of the session um, of the Sanhedrin. So this should surprise us. I mean, it's, uh, hey, wait a minute, he just wrote, he just, Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. And you would think the Sanhedrin would gather to affirm their belief in Jesus, to say, you know, this is wonderful. That No, they, they, they gather to want to kill him. And what happens, as is once, once again, this theme that is maintained throughout, that it's surprising that they want to kill Jesus after, after Jesus just raised Lazarus. They want to kill both Lazarus and, um, and Jesus. Sorry, give me a second, turn off that phone. So that's the, so, but also once again, the, the idea of the humorous element is that, so imagine, you know, put ourselves in that context. Jesus is entering Jerusalem and people are literally ripping trees and um, palm fronds off the trees and welcoming him. Why is this so important? Well, number one, let's start with the, the idea of the donkey. If you think of, or if you have read a bit of, of, of not only uh, the Bible history, but civil history, that those who conquered would come back um, to their city with the things that they have ransacked, stolen, or in, as they would see it, as their prize of victory. And people would gather around them to welcome their leader or their general or whoever was leading um, that battle. And if you go to Rome, you see arcs, you know, there are arches that celebrate certain victories, right? And those mark a victory. So for, 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 for the, in this, the context, it's important to see that social context, even though that's not found in this, in our biblical text. So you have to go outside the reading of the Bible to realize. So that's the context is that this crowd gathered to welcome, welcome Jesus into Jerusalem as the victor. Well, this is, but, but this is a different kind of welcoming because um, number one, he is not welcomed in this, uh, for very long. He's welcomed by crowds, but then he's welcomed and then he's killed. And a very, also a very important parallel passage because uh, on, in this section, chapter, chapter 12, we read about how the crowds began to shout. What do they shout? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They shout this. Well, where is there a parallel? Is that if we had a ball in my hand right now, I'd be bouncing it up and down because we should know when we think of context, context also is not only what happened before, but context is what will happen. And so we form that bridge. So guess what happens, which is, I think, familiar, maybe more familiar to a lot of people, is what happens at Jesus' um, trial. Um, is he innocent or guilty? Crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. So this is the irony or the parallel here. Here is that he's welcomed as a king, but then all of a sudden 
uh, a few days later, he's actually condemned and their new king or the king that is placed above Jesus is, uh, is welcomed or is, uh, is acknowledged and recognized. So that is kind of a, a, a brief overview. I mean, there's so much to be, to be, to be seen here, but, but in, in, in summary, we have these two sections that are put together in, the, in Sunday's reading. The section that has to do with Lazarus um, in Bethany with Jesus, Martha and Mary, preparing a supper for, for Jesus and them sharing a meal with each other. And then Jesus anointing, something expensive. Um, we also miss the fact that there was a, an additional irony that took place here is that Judas, son, Simon, Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, the one who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John adds, now he said this, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And so that alerts us to the fact that something is happening in the, ba in the background. And when, G when Judas actually ends up betraying Jesus, we, uh, we know that it, has been, it was prepared for in, in, in this verse. So we have that section of the meal, the anointing, the preparation for the betrayal, the preparation for the betrayal, is, is seen in the actual betrayal, the anointment, the, the anointing parallel to Jesus anointing, the meal to the meals that Jesus has all the way to the end of the Gospel of John, even at the even at the at the at the, uh, at the beach at the, at the lake as he he has a meal. So that gives us an important frame, important lens to be able to see this and say, okay, now that you understand the lens, now that you understand where this is all going, let's start with, with the journey. And that journey begins Jesus entering victoriously, Jesus entering with a lot of pomp and circumstance, and then parallel here to the fact that Jesus' entry is completely reversed because, or his, his, his welcoming is completely reversed in a few verses, and a few verses, a few chapters later. Um, uh, and then we we begin for us liturgically as i said from palm sunday to from lazarus saturday to palm sunday all the way to holy week um, and then the death and resurrection so you see so you see how this all ties in by our reading um, reading the bible reading contextually but also reading liturgically and seeing how these passages fit into our liturgical tradition which frames it now from Saturday all the way, in a sense, Saturday evening or Sunday morning, so that seven or eight days, depending on how you want to, how you want to count it. But if we don't have, if we don't see um, today's text within that larger context, every remember, every text is a context has a context, then we'll only be reading in isolation as a bunch of isolated, interesting verses that we might even put on our wall. We might have them engraved somewhere or put on our T-shirt. You know, great T-shirt or some people tattoo. Okay, great. You really want to tattoo something, tattoo the whole Bible, tattoo the, the, the Old Testament on one side <laughs> and the New Testament on the other. That way you can, <laughs> you can cross-reference everything, right? But that's how we read the Bible. We have to cross-reference things here and, here and there. Um, so let's just, um, before I close, I know we're limited on time, but 
let's go back to see how this all fit into what I was saying before. So we prayed, we read, we analyzed. So are we, are we saying yes to anything here? What's, what's, what's our yes? I think there are a few yeses or a few applications that I would make here. Number one is from the end of chapter 11 all the way to the beginning of, of chapter 12 to have complete and total trust in Jesus, that Jesus is able to not only raise Lazarus, but raise himself, but he also, he will raise us up at the last day. Not, and our faith is not only about the end of time, it's about today. Today, we're in a very difficult time around the world. A lot of people are on lockdown. Um, the coronavirus is spreading. It's like, for a lot of people, it's like a, it's like a movie. It's like a worse kind of movie coming to, it's worse than a movie because at least in a movie, you can turn it off. We're living, we're living very difficult times. Are you able to trust that the Lord, that Jesus' power to raise us, raise Lazarus, to raise himself from the dead is able to bring us through this if we are wise and cautious? And not only that, but also on a, on a, on a personal level, are we able to, to put our fears aside and continue to, to live our faith with joy, with peace, with love, with hope in the resurrection? despite everything that is going on around us? Or should we take it a step, even can we take it a step further and say, despite everything around us, are we able to realize that none of that is important? None of that is more important than our faith. So that same Lord who raised Lazarus, who raised himself, this is the yeah part of things. This is the yes in our life. He's able to conquer our fears. If he's able to raise Lazarus, well, he, uh, he is able to destroy death for Lazarus and destroy death, his own death. Well, then he is able to destroy our fears, our anxieties, our financial troubles that we're going, we're going to go through, right? Then another very important application is to see our life liturgically. Everything we do is done liturgical. And we don't just read the Bible uh, alone. We read the Bible alone to, to study the context, understand it, but we also read the Bible, and actually even more importantly, we read it as a community of believers because that's where we read the Bible. We break open the text, and we also break the bread and distribute it to, to each other, and that's where we see ourselves as a body of Christ. So we have those immediate applications. And then finally, I, we could definitely go on for, for much longer, but I'll just give you, I'll just share with you on a personal level, a final application that I think is very important is how we sometimes shift so quickly from welcoming Jesus. We might go to church on Sunday. We might be, we say Christ is risen, but then we're outside gossiping about somebody or we're, as soon as we, we celebrate the Eucharist, we Receive the bread and red and wine that became the body and blood of Christ, but then rush out of the church and then as if nothing happened. You know, do we are we part of that crowd that welcomes Jesus and then denies him, or do we want to be part of the crowd? And that's actually the church. The church is that crowd that welcomes Jesus and is consistent in their welcoming with Jesus, not having the spirit of the world that. You know, it says Abba, 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 but then at the end of the day, um, it, our actions are not recognizable. So don't forget that the application of this text is key. 
do, do the ground work of everything we did. Study the context. Pray, study the context, see the overall narrative. But then sit down now after we finish this uh, session, turn it off and give yourself five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. How have I welcomed Christ and how have I not welcomed Christ? How have I rejected Christ? How have I failed in many times in my life, for us as priests as well, to be a good witness to Christ? How have I said that I'm a follower of Christ and that I, I, I want to dedicate my entire life to him? But then all of a sudden, my words, my actions don't necessarily always reflect that. So that's the, the bridge that we want to cross over. Um, without that, this becomes just theoretical. More people have heard of a Bible than have actually lived it. Is, you know. So this is what we want to do. We want to hear about it. We want to read it. We want to live it. And it's that entire dynamic that makes uh, a reading of every text very exciting. There's nothing is, is boring in this. Let me just show you when I prepare a text. I'll show you what I do. I can, I go like this. You see all those reds and blues and sometimes highlights. And I actually put two Bible translations right next to each other. The text that we read in church from our lectionary, but then also do the, the RSV, just to compare translations, to compare um, compare words, compare um, just different different angles, different way of saying the same thing. So we can we can get the most out of it, highlight, highlight places, highlight people highlight movements, highlight shifts, and then ultimately go for takeoff and how, how this is going to be applied to my life today. So, Thank you, Father. This is uh, wonderful and encouraging words to as we head into our celebration of Palm Sunday. You know, like you said, we're all kind of in lockdown, shut down here. So the one thing we do have, if we look at it as a blessing, is some time on our hands. Yep. Uh, to turn off the television because they'll be saying the same thing tomorrow as they're saying today. And uh, to spend some time reading through the scriptures, especially this gospel passage, John chapter 12, read through it and ask ourselves important questions about it and then begin to do the research. And like you said, it's important we stand inside there and then we walk with the crowd and ask ourselves which side of that crowd we're going to be on when it comes to Absolutely. the cross. So uh, anyway, a real blessing to be with you. Thank you very much to all of our participants today. Uh, thank you for participating in this and, and studying with us and praying with us. Uh, may God bless you on this beautiful Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.